Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the season two finale of PR Future. I'm Zazu Lippert, the podcast's executive producer. When I'm not producing the podcast, I'm studying public relations at USC Annenberg. Today, we're mixing things up a little. I'll be at the mic asking Fred some questions about our recent 2021 global communication report as your guest host. Over the past few months, we've had the chance to talk to some incredible researchers, artists, authors, and journalists about one of the biggest issues facing our nation, polarization. And we've learned a lot from them. So we wanted to bring together the valuable insights from our guests and our own research at the center to wrap up this season's discussions on politics, polarization, and purpose. Today, Fred and I will dive deep into some of the findings from our surveys of journalists, PR pros, and the American public, discuss some strategies for combating polarization, and talk about some new projects and tools from the center that can help businesses take an informed stance on prominent social issues. I'm your guest host, Zazu Lippert, and this is PR Future. Well, thanks, Zazu. It is fun to have the tables turned here, and you asking the questions and me trying to answer them. So the title of our report this year was Politics, Polarization, and Purpose. Can you give us a little bit of info on why our team decided to tackle these topics for 2021? The idea behind this report was to follow up on last year's report on activism and to see whether the changing of the guard in our presidential election had any impact on the activists and other people whose opinions had been formed during the Trump administration. And from the point of view of the society overall, how polarization might change if there was a new president in office. And just like with last year's Global Communication Report, it seems like our research has almost become even more timely and relevant than we may have ever anticipated. In the introduction of the report, you wrote that basically the main hypothesis going in was even though polarization is driven by politics, it's still primarily a communication issue, which we can address as communications pros uniquely. So where did that hypothesis come from? Working my whole career in communications and teaching public relations, I tend to look at a lot of problems as communications problems. And I think that polarization is a a huge example of that. And it's not a structural problem as much as it is an inability for two sides to have a conversation about a topic they disagree on. And I think this is happening at all levels of our society, from the Congress down to people standing in line at the grocery store. And as communications professionals, we have a lot of experience dealing with difficult topics and creating understanding between diverse groups. So it seemed like polarization was a problem that could be addressed by the communications industry. Definitely. So as you've said, in a big picture sense, we really have two prevailing viewpoints that are constantly at odds here in the U.S., and we're having trouble communicating with each other. And it's been happening for a long time, but it seems to be something that's been heightened recently. And I know something we really wanted to find out from the survey was basically how people saw the future of polarization and national unity after the election. And so based on the center's research, what seems to be the general attitude of Americans and communications pros surrounding this? Well, we talked to Americans, we talked to communications professionals, and we talked to journalists. And all of them agreed that polarization would either stay the same or increase under the Biden administration. 
And we sort of expected that, so it wasn't a big surprise, but it's a little depressing to think that even after the most divisive president we've ever had, that things were going to continue to get worse in this regard. But I think our prediction has held true. I think the differences of opinion and the amount of discord has increased, even with Trump basically being silent. And on the far end of the predictions of polarization worsening, when we did our survey in December of last year, I think 23% of Americans said they believed the election would lead to civil unrest. And then basically right after our survey was over in January, we saw that play out with the Capitol insurrection. That was pretty immediate evidence that we've reached an extremely high level of polarization that was in line with the predictions of these 23% of Americans. But again, this survey was taken at a very specific moment in time, and the levels of polarization on a variety of topics are always changing, right? So how can we continue to track that change? Well, we're still studying that, and we're working now on a polarization index, which is going to measure polarization over time. The idea behind the polarization index is that you cannot manage polarization unless you can measure it, and nobody really knows how to measure it at this point in time. So we created an algorithm working with Golan and with Zignal to measure polarization across a series of controversial topics from climate change to gun control to immigration. And then we create an aggregate score kind of to show how polarized the country is overall. And we test this on an ongoing basis and release a report every quarter to talk about how polarized the country is and what are the issues that are driving that polarization? And then what are the aspects of that issue that are particularly controversial? This is brand new research. It's nothing anyone has ever done before. And it's going to be very helpful to people in communications as sort of a heat map of all of the societal issues, what's hot, what's cooling off, especially for companies that want to get involved in a particular topic. This will be a great way for them to educate themselves on what they can expect as a reaction from the media and from the general public. And right now, almost seven months after our initial survey, where do you think we are as a country in terms of polarization? I do think that there is a segment of the population who is tired of this constant conflict. I don't know what percent that is, more than half, I would guess. And then there are people on the extremes who seem to be wed to their ideas to the point that they would rather fight about them than listen to somebody else's opinion. So I think that there are different groups of people that are reacting differently, but the polarization itself seems to be just as heated of a debate as it was before. Yeah, that reminds me of what Amanda Ripley was saying when we talked to her about how you have these people who are trying not to be in conflict, and then you have the other side of the conflict entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, that was really a brilliant idea, this conflict entrepreneur. And it, it makes you realize that there are people across the spectrum in politics and media and business who are best served by having America be polarized. They get more ratings, they get more attention, they get more money. Those people are going to continue to feed this controversy and to be as far to the extremes as they can because it benefits them to do so. And I think the rest of us have to recognize that that's happening and try to incorporate that into our own approach to these, these various topics. So throughout these past two seasons of our podcast, we've talked about some of the biggest issues that are plaguing America today. 
And one of those is systemic racism. In our podcast, we've been talking a lot about how communications professionals can create change and really push for racial justice. Lately, we've seen so many discussions in the business world and in the communications world about diversity, equity, and inclusion, mostly in the last year or so. So how do you think businesses have played a role in creating change, and how do you think they can continue to play a role from a PR and communications perspective? I think that the Black Lives Matter protests of a year ago were a real milestone in the evolution of business. I think for the first time, businesses across America began to take this issue very seriously, partially because of their employees, partially because of their customers, and partially because they felt, I think they just felt it was time to actually do something. So the conversation about race, I think, has become much more serious. And I think that we're going to see a lot more change than we have in the past. Although that change will be slower than a lot of people would hope, business has a a big voice in this. And it's something that every time we survey communicators in business, they put diversity and inclusion as their highest priority. So I think we will see some changes in representation inside companies, in policies, in equity, and and those kinds of things. So I I do think that this is really happening now. It will just see how long it takes for some level of equality to appear. Yeah, and really just speaking of these gigantic shifts that we've seen, I remember even last spring when we did our 2020 Global Communication Report, which was before the Black Lives Matter protests, we basically asked companies about new activism and who they would partner with. And I think more companies said that they wouldn't partner with any of the organizations listed than companies who said they would partner with Black Lives Matter. And this year, I think, at least I would certainly hope, that we would get a very different answer. Two years ago, Black Lives Matter wasn't even on the radar. And then when the protests broke out, companies that had never made public statements about societal issues came out in support of Black Lives Matter. And I think many of them were very serious about it and committed to making real change. And we'll see what happens. I hope that they will continue that commitment and we will see some significant changes in the business world. How that translates to the rest of society, we shall see. But I think that it's what we were talking about before, that there's some inherent structural racism in our country that we have to address. Well, and one of the things that we've seen too with these really important issues like lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion is that people are turning to businesses more than government to fix things. So what are some of the top things that you've learned from our guests this past season about what people expect from businesses and how corporate communicators can really rise to the occasion? I go back to Robert Gibbs, who was the press secretary for President Obama, and his discussion with us at the Kenneth Aller Smith Symposium. And he talked about issues over time and how the government at the federal level can't seem to address many of these controversial issues. They argue about them consistently and never come to any kind of conclusion. But on the other hand, there's an evolution on the citizen level of changing ideas about some of these issues. So he used the example of gay marriage. When President Obama was in office, gay marriage was a huge issue and uh, very controversial and very polarizing. And the Congress never really dealt with it. But the issue itself was dealt with across various states with lots of different people. And it's not really an issue today. So the issue sort of went from controversial to being accepted 
without the federal government really ever making any change. And I think we're going to see that on legalization of marijuana. It is illegal federally to possess marijuana, but half the states allow it and people are accepting it. So this issue too is moving forward without the involvement of our federal government. It, it's not a good thing to have the government be so out of touch and so ineffective, but it is encouraging to think that some of these things like climate change and gun control will evolve even though the legislators in Washington DC can't seem to ever come to any sort of agreement on them. And looking internally at the communications industry, PR pros actually seemed pretty optimistic about the potential for systemic and structural change on things like DEI within the industry. And a lot of our Center for PR board members wrote about racism in the workplace and how to sort of increase DEI in really meaningful ways in the relevance report last year. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the stats seem to be indicating about the future focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion within the PR industry? I think it was ironic that the PR professionals who were counseling their clients and their companies about how to respond to Black Lives Matter were part of a profession that is mainly white. And it was part of the, the change that I think people are undergoing. There's a commitment to a more diverse workforce in public relations than ever before. We see a more diverse student population entering the public relations field, but it takes time. Um, you can't go from being 80% white to 50% white overnight. But I think that's the, the direction of travel. And I think people are really committed to it. And what we find is that more diverse groups make better decisions than groups that are all of one, one race or one age group or one nationality. We're going to find that in the future, the diverse points of view inside your company are going to be a very big asset in terms of deciding your position on an issue or deciding what you're going to announce or what you're going to say about something. Most of the people that get this wrong are companies that aren't very diverse, who don't have very much experience in this space, and they're realizing that that's, that's not going to work anymore. And something that I found really interesting in our research was that the top issues that Americans were looking to address weren't really the top issues that companies were willing to address, or PR and communications professionals weren't really looking at. Why do you think that is? Right now, obviously, if you're in business, you're more comfortable speaking out about things that are less controversial and more business issues for you. And that might be education, or it might be something that is more in your comfort zone. Topics like gun control and abortion and immigration, people are reluctant to take stands on because they're afraid they're going to alienate their customer base, or they're going to piss off their employees, or they're going to make their shareholders mad. That does happen. So I think as companies become more socially engaged, they're going to have to be more thoughtful about how they engage so that they're not damaging their reputation or hurting their business. But I think everybody's going to have to do this. It's just part of the evolution of business. Very few companies are going to be able to remain silent on every issue. Yeah, I think that sincerity piece is really huge because you can automatically tell when a campaign is insincere or when it's inauthentic. And I think a lot of that really ties back to the brand purpose research that we've done and really just the whole purpose and movement that we're seeing take over the communication industry. 
And one of the things that I thought was interesting in our research that we found was that basically one of the keys to creating really authentic purpose-driven campaigns is forging really strong partnerships with activist groups who are related to or invested in the cause that you're advocating for. Because these activist groups likely understand the intricacies of the issues far more than many companies could. You know, they've been embedded in them and the communities that these issues affect for so long. And this year in the GCR surveys, we saw that the percentage of communicators who were really willing to form these partnerships and increase their alliances with activist groups doubled since last year to about 29%, which is still, you know, there's a long way to go, which I think you said in the report as well. So how do you think we can encourage communicators to really form these partnerships more regularly? And maybe these are on these issues that they might be a little reticent to engage with at first, that might seem a little bit too controversial. It's funny that you should bring that up because I just watched Inside, the Netflix special with Bo Burnham, and he does a soliloquy in that about this corporate involvement and about all these brands taking on all these causes. And he, he does it very seriously, but it's obviously tongue in cheek. He's kind of making fun of why Cheerios has to tackle birth control or whatever, whatever it is. And I think that he makes an interesting point that companies, as they engage on these topics, have to do it in a way that is credible. And if it's just saying, you know, we support this, we support that, just because you want one of your customers to buy your product, it's not going to work. So I think having partnerships in the social space with activist groups and working in sync with them to actually change the way that things are happening is a much more viable way than just making a statement about your belief on a particular topic or giving money uh, to a particular organization. So I think this, the, the, the more that companies listen to and work with activist groups who have the credibility and the knowledge and the commitment, the more uh, authentic their efforts are going to, to be. And you won't have people like Bo making, making fun of them. <laughs> So shifting gears a bit, I wanted to take some time to really reflect on some of the incredible conversations that we had with some of our guests this season about polarization. And we talked to a variety of different people from a plethora of different industries, and each of them really provided some interesting, innovative, creative solutions and ideas for how we could bridge this divide. So what were some of the ideas that really stood out to you? Polarization is an enormous problem, and it's not going to be solved by one single thing. But it was interesting as we began to explore this to see how many different people were addressing it, that were thinking about it and concerned about it. Philippa Hughes was one of the most interesting. She was inviting people over to dinner at her house, some on the left and some on the right, Republicans and Democrats, and creating a dialogue, a human dialogue around these subjects over dinner and wine in a very friendly setting. And she did this hundreds of times over the past few years. And I thought that was a fascinating experiment in communication to try to get people to relate to one another as human beings first, and then as political being second. And I think that kind of experiment, if you could scale that and create an atmosphere where people were engaging with one another in a, a friendly way and having these conversations, I think we could make a lot of progress. And then Amanda Ripley, who looked at this from a journalism point of view, had some really interesting ideas. Her point was that we've got to stop looking at stuff as Republican and Democrat, left and right that we have to have a more nuanced view of the world. 
and that the media needs to present more nuanced stories. So when they're going out to report on something, they're not going to Ted Cruz on one side and somebody else on the other side to try to show the conflict, this extreme difference of opinion, but talk to people in the middle that maybe don't have such a hardcore defined position on something and talk to them about what they may be thinking. And I think that we've, we've lost that nuanced approach to things. And she said, don't ask questions that are black and white. Don't give people two choices. Give them four choices or five choices and let them think about what the answers are. So I think that's an approach. And you know, the biggest issue that all of our guests really identified was this lack of scalability. Philippa said to us when we asked her, you know, how do you scale this on a national level? She was like, let me know when you figure it out because I'm still trying to figure it out. So how do you think that communications professionals can help really bring these conversations to the national stage? One of the ways they can do it is through the businesses that they represent the companies they work for or the clients that they represent if they work in agencies. Companies like Apple and Amazon and Netflix have very big megaphones. A lot of people listen to them. And if they would use these platforms to talk about a more unified America and to talk about some of these difficult issues and to help bring people together instead of separating them, I think it would make a big difference. And, and we're seeing that happen. We're beginning to see that happen in the communication across various companies. And that's where the purpose element of our report comes in. Uh, more and more, we're seeing companies communicate with a purpose. And often that purpose is to improve some sort of aspect of our lives. And sort of going back to what you were saying about the media a little bit, and that the media also has a role to play here. Something that was really interesting we saw in our report was that both PR pros and media professionals or journalists expected greater mutual respect developing this year. How do you think that's going so far? Well, it's interesting because I think public relations and journalism have often been seen as opposing forces in the world of news. It used to be when a journalist went to work in PR, they would say, you've gone to the dark side. But I think that that has changed. I think what's happened is PR people and media people have a common cause to fight fake news and disinformation. Both professions have a vested interest in credibility and truth and believability and trust. And those things are under siege because of the amount of disinformation and fake news, which we also see as uh, increasing in the coming years. If you don't know who to believe and you don't know who's telling the truth, people who are communicating for the media or for, for companies are gonna have a very challenging time making their case because nobody's gonna believe anything. So I think we have a, a mutual goal, preserving the credibility and the importance of communications. On that topic of sort of this joint cause of depolarization of the media, when we talked to Christina Bell and Tony, she said that she really sees local news outlets as an avenue for depolarization and that they're uniquely positioned to really start depolarizing from the bottom up. But I know from a PR perspective, Local outlets don't usually have as wide of a reach as the big national ones, so they usually aren't pitched to as much. Do you think that should change? No, that came up over and over. As we heard it from Christina, we heard it from a number of our guests that they thought that 
local was the most credible and was going to be the most influential in sort of resetting the debate about what's real and what isn't real in this era of polarization. And I thought that was really fascinating because they said people rely on the local news and they trust the local news. But at the same time, the local news stations are hurting for revenue. The local newspapers are going out of business. If they are our hope, there's going to have to be another economic model that I think is going to have to support them. But you would like to see that if they are the beacon for everyone else on the national level, that people will begin to follow suit. But what we found, I think, during this season, WGN launched a news channel called News Nation. And it was designed to be a totally unbiased broadcast news outlet to compete with MSNBC and Fox and CNBC. And uh, nobody watched it. And their ratings were very low because they didn't have a bias built into their coverage. And I think that's also a little bit discouraging that if you have media that's not editorializing on the right or the left, that people aren't interested. They don't want to watch it. So this idea of the media being able to correct the situation is complicated. I do think that, that local media is a great place to start and we'll see how that works. And for PR professionals, working with local media, maybe that's the, the latest thing. It's, it's like working with influencers. We went from working with these big, important influencers that had millions of followers. Now we're working with nano-influencers, micro-influencers who have smaller audiences, but they have much more credibility with those audiences. And I think credibility is what people are, are looking for in the media and in, in public relations. Yeah, it's funny that you just mentioned social media and influencers because social media was the next thing I wanted to ask you about. You know, we've seen some huge changes in social media in the past year and some large debates about what the future of social media should be. And one of the things that Jennifer Kavanaugh from the Rand Corporation brought up when we were talking to her was that she sort of thinks that, one, it's a big way that disinformation and fake news spreads. And based on that, we should have some sort of rules for navigating social spaces. From your perspective, how do you think we can begin to approach changing the way we use the social space? It's a great question. How do you regulate social media or how do you make it better? Social media has been an enormous boost for communications. It has given a voice to people who never had a voice before. It has helped activists organize around important causes like a March for Our Lives movement from Parkland, Florida. On the other hand, it has been the source of most of the disinformation that we see. Some comes from traditional media, but mainly they're propagating this online. And the ability to to determine what's true or what's accurate is becoming harder and harder for the individual user of information to determine. So there have been guidelines set, and I think those guidelines are important. We probably need more of them. There is more training that needs to be conducted in media literacy so that people will know the difference between something that's an opinion and something that's a fact. And I think schools can help in that regard. But it is uh, potentially enormous problem when everyone is getting all of their information on their phone and through all of their social channels and they don't take the time or they don't have the information at hand to know where this information is coming from and to decide whether or not they should repeat it or they should believe it. My hope is that the younger generation that you're a part of is developing sort of a sixth sense of social media because they're so engaged and so familiar with it, 
that I think they know when things are true or not true, or they know how to find out whether things are true or not true. So I have a lot of hope that the younger generation will see through a lot of this uh, disinformation because they're so accustomed to the guidelines or the lack of guidelines in social media. I, I don't know. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you have a pretty good grasp of the information you're seeing, whether it is credible or, or not credible? You know, it's a tough one. I think it really depends on the platform. Like on Twitter, when I see news in a post, it's usually a link to a news story. And I feel like I can usually tell very quickly if it's from a source that I deem to be credible or if it's some sort of media source that I might not believe has the same level of journalistic integrity as others, per se. But then when you go on something like Instagram, people are making informational slides all the time. Certain Instagram accounts from organizations that are known for their research and are verified, I'm pretty inclined to believe their posts. But when it's from an organization that I don't know well, that isn't established, verified, I think it's harder to tell. Because everybody has the tools these days to make something that looks really professional. But I think so much of it is sort of just figuring out how to do the research yourself on that end, when you're questioning it, or when you're not sure if you think it's credible or not. And I think we talked about this a little bit in the student episode, how we navigate it is like when we see a big stat, our first instinct is really to seek out the source and figure out where that came from. You know, do a quick Google search, see what shows up and where it seems to be coming from. So I think that we're becoming more in tune with how to navigate it, but I don't know if it's something that's being completely done across the board yet, or if it's more just among those of us who've been lucky enough to really be trained in media literacy and journalism and different things like that in school for our future careers, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think that's the beauty of public relations and journalism is that people who are involved in these professions and students who are studying them have a heightened sense of literacy in terms of determining whether something is credible or not credible, whether it's authentic or fake. And I think that's the kind of training that everyone needs. And perhaps public relations should be a course that's required for everyone that goes to college, just so they can understand a little bit about how this communication works, so that they can make their own decisions about what they should believe or what they should share and what they should, should not share. Yeah, like add media literacy to the core GE requirements, right? It's probably a good idea, probably to help us navigate all of the craziness that we sift through really on a daily basis. From where we are at the Center for Public Relations at USC Annenberg, what do you see USC Annenberg doing to really address these issues of politics, polarization, and purpose that we've been talking about? I think that the Annenberg School at USC plays a leadership role in improving communication across the board. We have journalists and PR people working together side by side and students. So it, it makes those two industries, I think, uniquely compatible. Secondly, we have a lot of interesting programs that are sort of on the cutting edge of reporting and communicating in a way that we're uncovering things that people haven't seen. And we're looking at things from a different point of view than perhaps the, the professional world does. And then we have an extremely diverse population in the student body who I think has different ideas about the future and they wanna go out there and make an impact on the world. We're gonna see a lot of the leaders of the future 
in the public relations world and the journalism world coming out of the, the Annenberg School. And what are the top five tips that you would give to communicators for really navigating this time of transition, turmoil, and really transformation? Well, it's a good question, Zazu, and I've learned a lot this year in terms of the polarization topic and, and how communications can help. First of all, I think that words matter. We have to choose the words we use carefully so they don't alienate people and they unify people and use them in a broader sense to bring people together. Secondly, I think companies need to communicate with purpose, value-driven messages that really address issues that people care about. Then we have to listen to people more respectfully. As Amanda pointed out in a polarized society, people dehumanize the other side. And once you do that, no communication can take place. So I think we owe it to each other, even though we disagree to, to listen and, and be respectful. Fourth, we've got to be careful with the facts. The information that we put out has to be accurate and credible, or we shouldn't put it out. The information that we receive we have to be scrutinize it to make sure that it is true, especially if we plan on sharing it with others. So we've got to be very careful about the credibility of what we're participating in. And finally, we've got to be able to partner with people that we are unaccustomed to working with, whether they have been traditional enemies or competitors, because we're not going to solve this by ourselves. Uh, the media, business, government, Everybody needs to work together to help reduce polarization. We can't do it unless we do. Well, Fred, those are very wise words, and I really hope that people take that advice. And of course, I couldn't end this episode without asking you the ever-famous question in our office that you ask every one of our guests. What emoji would you use to describe 2021? I would probably use two emojis at the end of my description of 2021. One is the, the hands together. Some people think that's praying, and, and maybe it is, and other people think it's gratitude. I like to think of it as gratitude, and I think we should have more gratitude for where we are right now, that we've come through this pandemic, and we've survived it, and we're going to be better because of it. The other is fingers crossed, and to me, that is more on the hopeful side. We hope things are going to be better. We're we're optimistic about things being better. And I think they will be. I think that we've come through a very difficult time in our country and in the world. And we have the chance to now take what we've learned and do things differently. And hopefully, fingers crossed, people will do that. Well, I've got my fingers crossed with you, Fred, and I think it's so interesting because no matter how many difficult topics we're tackling through these episodes, they always seem to really just naturally end on a note of hopefulness. And I think that we saw in our research that Americans are really equally as hopeful about the future, regardless of all of the difficulties that we've been through in the last year and a half and the difficulties that we're still facing. So I think it's really encouraging when we're thinking about the future of social change and how we as communicators can really contribute to that. There's a lot of work to be done to create much-needed change in our nation. And it seems like communications professionals are uniquely positioned to make a difference. If we lead with authenticity, attention to detail, and a collaborative spirit. Coming together with other professionals, from journalists to activists, is a must. Looking toward the future, Fred summed it up perfectly. It's a promising time for people in the communications business. The 
the PR industry is roaring back business-wise. There are lots of job openings for students coming into the business. And the role that we play in society has never been more important than it is now. So I think there's lots of uh, opportunity for a career. And I think the jobs that we're doing are going to increasingly make a difference in our businesses and in society overall. So it's a good time to be in public relations. And I, I think more people are going to join it and appreciate it and uh, lead it. To learn more about the future of our industry, check out the 2021 Global Communication Report at annenberg.usc.edu GCR. And thanks for tuning in to PR Future, a progressive podcast created by PR professionals for PR professionals. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode was recorded and produced remotely in Los Angeles by Ron Antoinette and myself. I'm your guest host, Zazu Lippert, and this is PR Future.